Hey, everybody. Thanks for uh, checking out this. Well, it could be a video that you're watching, uh, either on Facebook or Patreon, or it could be the audio that we're going to release to the podcast audience uh, in a little while. However you're getting this message, uh, I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for your support of our podcast. I want to thank you for all of you who support it on Patreon and make it possible for us to do what we do. We could not do it without you. Thank you to everybody in the Messy Conversations group that uh, offers your thoughts and questions and doubts and struggles with these issues that we're raising on the podcast. And I'm so grateful for each and every one of you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We've got a couple great episodes coming up uh, of the podcast. Um, Martin Brooks from Peace Catalyst International will be on our next episode, and you do not want to miss that one. It's fantastic. I'm really excited for you to hear it. But before um, we release that episode, I wanted to address something that I hear from a lot of our friends online. Uh, A common question that people have, people who are deconstructing, especially from an evangelical background where you've come out of the eternal conscious torment mindset and you've come out of this idea that we are all bound for hell unless... By the blood of Jesus and the skin of our teeth, we get delivered by grace and God has to let us into heaven. Um, That's a mindset that I was raised with and I know a lot of other people were too. And so when we start, when that starts to lose its grip on us and we start to think differently about God, we start to see God as a loving father, mother, however you choose to think of God. I don't think it really matters. God doesn't have sex organs. But as a loving force, a loving being, an Abba, someone you can really count on and depend on and trust with your whole self, something you have to hold no nothing back from, someone who does not want to punish you or destroy you or condemn you, but just wants to love you. When we start to see that, as Brian Zond would say, God is like Jesus— God has always been like Jesus. We didn't always know this, but now we do. When you start to accept that revelation of who God is, and hell begins to lose its impact in your faith, people start asking the question, well, then what's the cross about? Why did Jesus die if it wasn't to save us from hell? What are we saved from? Well, that expression of being saved has a lot of connotations to it, most of which have no basis in the Bible whatsoever. We actually take the whole idea of being saved from a passage in the book of Acts. Um, Jesus had died on the cross. He had ascended to heaven. And in the aftermath, Peter, who a lot like me, had a foot-shaped mouth. He was always saying something. He's, his mouth was writing checks that his body couldn't cash. Uh, you remember, while Jesus was alive, he heard that Jesus was going to suffer and die and said, uh-uh, we can't let that happen. Jesus, we are going to stop this. I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen to you. And Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And Peter was constantly doing stuff like that. But every once in a while, he'd have a revelation. Jesus would say, who do people say that I am? And people would say, oh, you're a great teacher and rabbi and prophet. 
some people say you're Elijah come back from the dead. And Jesus looked at the disciples and said, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter was the one who caught the awareness, who caught that revelation and said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, oh, you're blessed. Simon, son of Jonah, flesh and blood. Nobody told you this. You heard the voice of Abba. And that changes the way you look at everything. And so Peter, he had these moments of incredible revelation, right? But he struggled. He was steeped in religion and he struggled with it, uh, probably for his whole life. I know that I will. There is a passage where Peter has had the Holy Spirit poured out upon him and all the other believers there at Pentecost. And he stands up, this man who was terrified on the night that Jesus was betrayed, hiding from the people who were torturing Jesus in fear that they were going to torture him too. And you remember the story. Jesus uh, did, uh, told Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny you even know me three times. But once you've turned back, see, Jesus always had confidence that Peter was going to do the right thing in the end. But there's that in between where you haven't got to where Jesus knows you're going to be yet. And you've already done the thing that makes you disappointed in yourself, but you haven't worked your way through it. And Peter was dealing with that, right? He, he was asked, you know, are, are you with the Galilean? And he's like, no, of course not. And somebody else asked, aren't you one of his disciples? No, no, I tell you, I'm not. And it says that he was asked a third time. Aren't you with Jesus? And in the Greek, a curse word is actually used. Basically, it's the equivalent of, damn it, I already told you, I don't know the man. And the gospel account says, one of the gospel accounts says that the rooster crowed and that Jesus and Peter locked eyes in that moment. Can you imagine the disappointment with self that you would have uh, dealt with from that scenario. But Jesus had already said, but once you turn again, see, Jesus always knew Peter was going to work through that. Peter in that moment didn't realize it. But when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, Peter stood up and he preached the good news that Messiah had come that Jesus was the one the Jewish people had all been waiting their whole lives for. But he ended his sermon basically with the message of God sent his son, sent Redeemer to teach us a new way to live and, and to guide us in the path of righteousness, and you murdered him. And so the people who heard that message, thinking of God as a vengeful, wrathful being who they had just royally pissed off said, what shall we do? How can we be saved? What do we need to do so the wrath of God does not burn us down? And that's when Peter said, you know, put your faith in Jesus. And so that expression of what must we do to be saved, that's been attributed to being about hell. It wasn't about hell at all. It never was. 
So if we're not saved from hell, what is it that we're saved from? Well, the first thing that I want to talk about, there's a, there's a ton of answers to that question. So maybe this video will just be the first in a series. But the first thing I want to cover is we are saved from ever having to believe that we've been rejected by God. Most of us go our whole lives thinking that God really can't stand us, that we don't measure up, we're not good enough, we don't walk straight enough, we don't walk tall enough, we don't follow enough rules, we don't pray enough, we don't read enough of the Bible. We live with a constant rejection complex when it deals with God. But Jesus from the cross changes that because Jesus takes the worst humanity had to offer all of our violence, all of our malice, all of our ridicule, all of our blasphemy. He takes it all upon himself. And then what does God do? Does he send down angels from heaven to smite those Roman soldiers that put Jesus on the cross? No. God, where is God? God is on the cross speaking words of life and forgiveness and reconciliation. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. He pleads ignorance on our behalf. Even in the moment where we had put God through Christ in the worst possible torment, He's still loving us, forgiving us, and reckon, wanting to reconcile with us. You don't ever have to feel like God has rejected you again. I know one of the things for me that made me feel like I... Uh, was rejected by God was I always thought, well, you know, even on the cross, when Jesus took my sin on himself, the Bible says very clearly that God cannot look upon sin and therefore God couldn't look at Jesus. And that's why Jesus says, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And if you believe that God will reject Jesus when he takes his your sin upon him, of course you think God has rejected you. Here's good news. God didn't reject Jesus. It's not possible. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God didn't reject Jesus. Jesus is quoting the 22nd Psalm that starts off with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But ends in a cry of victory. It's about restoration. It's about getting everything back that's been stolen. God didn't reject Jesus, and he's not rejecting you. The God of the universe, the creator of it all, is depicted in one of my favorite parables, the story of we call it the prodigal son. You know, the prodigal son, as he's going home, he's wasted all of his money. He's blown it on partying and prostitutes and who knows what else. He's eaten the pods and the pig pen. Uh, because they won't even give him any food. They've just given him this little day labor job, but he's eating the pig's food. And, and he thinks to himself, even my father's hired hands, the servants have it better than this. So I'm going to go home and I'm going to apologize and I'm going to work. And he works all the way home on his repentance speech. And as he's practicing his repentance speech, He's basically preparing to manipulate his father into letting him come in on as a slave because even the slaves have it better than he had it. But as he's practicing that repentant speech, walking home, the father sees him coming. You see, the father had been sitting by that window looking out 
watching and waiting for his son to come home. The son thought the father's so mad at me. He's going to try. He's going to reject me. I'm going to have to talk him into this. I'm going to have to talk him into giving me a second chance. He was operating from a place of rejection because he knew what he had done. But the father wasn't operating like that at all. The father was watching and waiting, hoping that the son of his that he's lost will one day be found. And when he sees him, he can't help himself. He runs and he throws a robe on him to cover his shame, his nakedness. He puts a ring on his finger, that signet ring that says, you're one of us, you belong here in this place with me. He throws a party, he kills the fatted calf. He spares no expense, he's celebrating. Why? Because my son was dead. He was far away and he didn't know he could come home. But he's alive again. I've got my son back. The relationship has been reconciled, which was all the father ever wanted. So what are we saved from? We're saved from an orphan mentality that says, I'm too broken and screwed up for God. We're saved from believing we've been rejected by God. And that secondly sets us free from fear. Perfect love casts out your fear, when you come home to your father's house, knowing that that maybe you've done a lot of things that you're not very proud of, but your father couldn't care less about those things. And he covers you with kisses and he puts a royal robe on your neck and a ring on your finger and throws a party on your behalf. You lose your fear of your father. You see, my father is not who I thought he was. He just wanted me to come home. And so perfect love casts out our fear. And First John says, fear has to do with punishment. Those of us who fear punishment from God in hell haven't yet allowed love to do its full work in our hearts. Now, listen, we're all on a journey towards discovering that we have nothing to fear from God. Some of us are going to come to that awareness in this lifetime. Some of us are starting to understand that now. Some of us may not gain that awareness until we transition to eternity. Whenever we experience it, it sets us free. Living free from fear sets us free from the need to scapegoat others, to find enemies around every corner. It helps us become peacemakers as we start being more willing to think things through from a perspective other than our own. Knowing that God is good and that God is love sets us free from fear and fear sets us free from insecurity, rejection, scapegoating. Think about it. All of the worst sins in this world are rooted in fear. Fear does horrible things to us. And if you have to fear the one who created you, then fear is in your DNA. It is part of who you are. And Jesus came to save us from fear. We don't have to be afraid of God. We don't have to be afraid of each other. We don't have to be afraid anymore. Thirdly and finally for this video, what do we say from? We're safe from 
ever believing that we've been rejected by God, we're saved from fear. And finally, we're fear, uh, we're saved from ever truly being alone again. Because when you realize that God hasn't rejected you and that you have nothing to fear in him, he knows you completely and loves you exactly like you are. You have nothing, nothing, nothing to fear in God. And when you really latch on to that awareness, you realize God's always with me. There's never been a moment in my life when I was doing the things that I'm proud of and the things that I most regret. There's never been a moment of my life that God was not with me. God is closer to me than my next breath. I love how Cody Cody Johnston says, uh, we bow our heads to pray because God is within. We know that God is closer than that next breath. But not only is God always with us, but God gives us a community, a family to walk with, to to encourage one another, to talk about our doubts and our struggles with. Now, I know that many of you, and, and me too, have found community that overpromised and underdelivered. They said, you're going to be loved here. The Naked Pastor has a great cartoon about this. It's basically a church propped up on a stick, and the bait that they're hunting for people with is love. And and religion uses love to lure people in, the promise of love, the promise of acceptance, to lure people in. And then once you get in there, they say, yes, we love you, but now you have to change. That is not what unconditional love looks like. Love without agenda is what sets us free. That's the kind of love that God has for you and the kind of God that God gives us for one another. God gives us a community. He gives us a family. He gives us each other. Now, those churches may have overpromised and underdelivered. And I know that many of us have been hurt. We've been wounded. And I don't want to ever for a minute discount the pain of what you've been through. I accept it. I hear you. I know that what you're telling me is the truth. But that's not a reason for you to stay alone and isolated for the rest of your life. That is a prison sentence. Do not sentence yourself to solitary confinement in the spirit. You don't have to be alone. Well, God's enough for me. Well, okay, yeah, God is with you and he'll never leave you and never forsake you. But when God's love begins to well up inside of you, you're going to want to give it away. And you're going to want to receive the flow of his love from others. So that community is so important. Now, I know that many people, including folks on our podcast, have said that that kind of community, community of faith, can only be found in a sacred building led by a member of the clergy overseeing rituals and sacraments. And while I know of some very healthy, life-giving churches that do offer genuine community, I reject that claim that we can't find genuine community anywhere else. The reality is our kids find community at school. They find community on a sports team. Many people find community with their coworkers. Uh, It's a little harder for us grownups to experience real community. It's hard to know who that we can trust enough to share anything real of ourselves. You know who is the beginning of community for me was my wife, Brandy. And remember, Brandy, uh, this is my second marriage, all right? I had a first failed marriage um, that was nothing like real community. But when Brandy and I got together, 
She saw the very worst, the stuff that I was terrified anybody outside of my house would ever know about me. She saw that and loved me anyway. And that set me free to let her in. And so she was the beginning of real community for me. She knows the worst about me. She loves me anyway. In the last couple of years, I've been able to add to my community. Brandy's always going to be the the first and and uh, greatest member of, of my community. Our kids are part of my community. Folks like Keith Giles, folks like Bo Hoffman, Andrew Parks, Carl and Laura Forehand, Dallas Verity. Uh, I've got a friend on Facebook named Janice Jones that I just think the world of. These are people I care about. John Turney. There's so many others. I don't want to go start going down that list because you're probably one of them. If you're watching this video or or listening to this audio, you're probably one that I would count as my community. That messy conversations group on Facebook, that feels like genuine community to me. Now, obviously, we're limited through technology to ever relating. It's still a public forum, and so there's always going to be something that we're holding back. But I'm so grateful that I don't have to walk this spiritual journey alone. And you don't either. What are we saved from? We're saved from ever being alone. You don't have to be alone. God is with you, and we are with you. God is love, so are you, and we are here to remind you of that. Community, Faith community, in my opinion, is this. It's knowing that God it's having it's being surrounded by a mindset of the extravagant love of God. That's what a faith community is. It's people who will cheer you on and encourage you and remind you that God loves you and wants the very best for you. That he's not working against you and you have nothing to fear in him. That in my mind is a faith community. And so our Facebook group counts. The folks you get together with at the coffee shop, that counts. The folks you love to have lunch with after church on uh, at the Mexican restaurant, that counts. Sometimes that's a more genuine expression of church than what you sat through from 10 to 12 on Sunday morning. The husband and wife sitting together at home, that counts. That is community. If they're spurring one another on in faith, if they're giving permission to ask hard questions and struggle past the easy answers, that is community. Jesus has saved us. God has saved us from ever being alone. I've got a lot more to say about this. We'll do it in another video. I intended for this one to be five or 10 minutes, and right now we're at 23. So thank you so much for watching the video. We will do a series on this. I'd love to hear from you. What has God saved you from? What is it that you think of that you needed rescuing from? I'd love to hear it in the comments on this video. Uh, you can send me private messages, and, and I try to respond to those the best I can. But I would love to hear from you, maybe in the group. Oh, there went Mr. Rogers. It's definitely time for me to go. Y'all have a great day. We love you. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for your support of this podcast and our creative work. Have a great day.